So this is the important question. Would you rather fight a duck-sized horse or a horse-sized duck? Um, a duck-sized horse. Mm. No, because I've had this idea that, like, a duck-sized horse, you know, it'd be very prideful, it'd be proud of itself, but, you know, just, you know, very reserved. Like, a horse-sized duck would be terrifying. Cause, like, oh, you know, oh, those things are vicious. I think the big selling point of that goose game was just, like, you got to be an asshole and terrorize everyone. Now imagine him three times the size. You see, I don't like anything that flies or flaps or anything, so I will happily take that horse-sized duck. Yeah, happily. You can kick a horse-sized duck. No, duck-sized you, you, horse, there we you go. Might, you might feel um, a bit bad after, like, beating up the small one, though. Of course, but, like, I prefer to deal with that than to deal with a huge duck. No, thank you. It'd be, it'd be a nice meal, though, you know, just... I mean... Uh, if you win? Eating the 500, why not? They, they don't even have teeth, it's just, they just swallow their food. Exactly, they could just... Anaconda do. Ana yeah, anaconda <laughs> don't want none. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Talking Crap About, the only film and video game podcast run and approved by gingers. And a half-ginger. And a non-ginger. That's right. There's two people in this podcast. On one end, it's Michael. I just don't have a fancy subtitle this time because I'm still thinking of that last section. And then on the other end, it's Peter. Just okay. Peter. Just Peter. Hello there. <sighs> How's how's everyone doing today? Horrible. No, I'm kidding. Hungover. <laughs> I think hungover is the only word we can use right now because every day it's like the same few walls that I wake up to. So one room's for the Switch, one room's for the new PS4, and then there's the bedroom where it's just like, I don't know, somewhere in between. Fair. Oh, it's just the bedroom for me. Same. And the yeah. kitchen. Kitchen's good, you know, just for sneaking stuff. Although, like, mom's been complaining recently I have a sweet tooth, and I'm like, stop buying the stuff then, because I won't eat it. I mean, true. Yeah, I can well, relate to that. I can buy my own sweet tooth. <laughs> Same. Yeah. But... Secluded corner, no one gets to it, just my own pile. Exactly. Because why not? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm still struggling to find words uh, to start this one off. Um, this is Binge Report. So basically for this one starting off, we're basically just going to have a wee chat about things we've watched recently, whether it was good or bad, and just a general recommendation. I think I'm just going to start this one off with just got a few notes because, um, you know, I'm prepared. I'm ready for this. I recently watched Ford versus Ferrari. This released just around the later half of 2019. It sort of just flew under the radar for me because like, I feel like its marketing was just very limited because there was a lot of other stuff that came out around the later part of that year for me. Mm -hmm. For me to talk about this film, it's worth giving an idea of just what it's about because it's essentially set in the 1960s and it's about the Ford brand itself trying to make a name for itself in the world of motorsports because they're seen as outdated, old-fashioned Americana just out of touch cars for the general public while Ferrari is sort of dominating 
the scene, not just in the respective field of sporting, but just the world in general. The whole premise of the film was about the creation of the Ford GT model, which went on to be like one of the most famous cars in existence. So it channels the journey of like it being developed and the central men involved in its creation and eventual popularization. The way I'm talking about it now is that this is a movie for car enthusiasts, and in some respects it is because this is not a subject matter I'm particularly into. I mean, the most knowledge I have of cars is cars and Herbie fully loaded. (laughs) (laughs) Just, I I don't know my GT from my pistons. Um, <laughs> Ford versus Ferrari that it's effectively gets you into a subject matter you really wouldn't have had any prior knowledge of because it's very much obsessed about the creation of things and seeing how it slowly ge- goes step by step to its eventual final product is is slowly endearing like this was directed by James Mangold he previously did the Solo Wolverine movies as well as I believe he did the remake of Free Ten to Yuma like He enjoys very slow-paced movies. They're about dialogue exchanges, like getting our characters to this point where in the last third it all clicks together in like a big spectacular showcase in the end. I feel like that's one of the things that this film does effectively achieve because it is slow. It is very much about people in rooms chatting about how they're going to like achieve their goals or how they're going to get to this last stage or how they're going to beat their competitors. All of this is held together not just by uh, the, the accuracy to the setting, but also just some of the performances in it, because the main racer in this is played by Christian Bale, and this is the most fun I've seen him have in a performance in ages, because he's the type of guy who gives 110% in everything, but mm-hmm. it's not nearly as like downbeat or serious as some of the other stuff he's done. It just feels like he's having a lot of fun with it, like it's proper big Cockney English accent, and... Initially, it takes some time to get used to, but, like, he's so... Such an endearing asshole. Like, he's obviously yeah. very rude, but you like him. And the fact that he, like, is so passionate about what he does, and as a young son that he really cares about, is one of those things that just, like, slowly endears you to him with the runtime. So much of the film's uh, appeal isn't just in how it gets developed or seeing these people, like, work through their own personal issues. It's also just about how a lot of this is conveyed because a lot of practical effects got used for this film. And, like, I'm very appreciative of that because it would have been so easy to fake a lot of this stuff, like, Mm -hmm. just do it in the computer. But they made the effort to use old model cars. Um, uh, The cinematographer for this, I can't remember his name... um, Theoden Papa Michael, I think he's from Greek, uh, used a lot of natural light for this here. So everything is given this quality where it feels authentic, like it feels dangerous. And like, even though it's just racing, Mm -hmm. the way it's framed and it's shown always feels dangerous. Like there's always this chance that it could go wrong. Um, The way that it was, the way that you said that made it sound like as if um, it was a documentary. But whenever you mentioned like Christian Bale and like other parts of it, it then made it a movie, which is like an interesting way that they did it. I can like I haven't seen it, but like I feel like as if that would be the way it is. Yeah, and one thing I feel that is worth noting is that like there is like this deeper message to how like a lot of like hardworking individuals who will have like major effects on iconic properties will get lost in the shuffle in the pursuit for a big business or how a property like wants to stand out like 
I won't go into spoilers on this. Like, if you do know the real world events and what these men did achieve or what happened to them, I feel like you will already have a sense of what's going on. But there is a point in the narrative where, like, a lot of, like, the central characters, like, slowly disappear as it goes along because it focuses on more specific actions in the plot, as well as how... Let's say the villains themselves, Ferrari, really don't get a lot of focus. You know, despite the fact that they are in the title, although, like, I think in Europe it's been renamed Le Mans 66 for, you know, the event that takes place at the end. They're weirdly not given as much as I expected. Like, in the final race, we're shown, like, the, uh, let's say, villainous racer, and the way it's shot and conveyed is made to make us think this is like a big revealing moment despite the fact we've never really seen this person or something like that there's no shame in also saying like the film does end on a downbeat note not just about how one's individual success or impact on something gets lost it's also just about how like real world events tie into that because obviously this one is a lot more tied to real world fiction than anything else like they couldn't pull a once upon a time in hollywood and flip the script in the last bird Okay. I think the highest praise I can give Ford versus Ferrari is that it's one of those movies that, like, I'm glad I watched. I don't think I'm in a rush to, like, analyze it or get back to giving it another viewing, but with a lot of Mangold's work, it's slow, it's deliberate. When it gets to its point, it is incredible, but mm -hmm. there is definitely going to be some people who will not, like, appreciate the slower pace of it. And you know what? As someone who was very much raised on Quick Fix solutions and faster paced films in my youth i feel like mixing it up every once in a while with something slower more deliberate i think does a world of good okay yeah. what would you give it out of a rate of 10 for your first initial view in that well i think i'll i will give a rating for this but um one thing i've always stressed when doing my own sort of critical analysis is that i don't believe giving scores to something is always legitimate are always important because I feel like one's personal experience is more important rather than trying to get some artificial score to sell to a public but you know since you asked I think I will give it I'd say something like an eight because it is worthwhile viewing I just don't think it's something I'm in a rush to see again okay so it's like you can have it in small doses and you'll watch it once and like the next time you'll see it it'll be like a year from now if you're in the mood yeah, this is probably one of those old man films. Probably something I'll watch my dad sometime in the future. Hey. Okay. So, Michael, then. You've been watching Extraction. I heard that, Peter. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it's in a, in a world where John Wick has been delayed until 2021. Rip. I needed to get something to, to fill my boots with. Okay. So, Netflix released Extraction, written, I think, by the Russo brothers, actually, and directed by Chris Evans' stunt double. Hmm. I think it's a, it's a it's actually a comic book property. I don't know. I didn't read into it very much. It's it's the kind of the opposite of what you were saying. It's not sort of slower paced. It is breakneck nonstop action. But it wears its inspiration on its sleeve. It's it's John Wick with Chris Hemsworth, but it's good. <laughs> okay, right. And this is the one set in Afghanistan, is it? With him India. as a soldier. Yeah. He's he's a, he's a mercenary. It's set in India. He goes in ah. to retrieve some crime boss's son or whatever. The, the plot isn't where the appeal is, really. The plot is this sort of basic the, the characterization. The, the villain of the piece is your typical twirling. Twirling is, is mustache. 
get the audience to hate him because he kills children, Anakin Skywalker type thing. Ooh. But it starts, it is, it's John Wick by another name. It starts in media res like the first John Wick does, where it starts at the end of the film and then goes back to the start. But the cinematography of the action scenes, where it kind of like tracks the action no matter what, like John Wick, is where most of the appeal is. The only issue I had with it was there's a 15 minute one shotter. It's just, it's just there because it looks cool. Like, there, I can see no other reason behind it. But it, 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 I would definitely give it a... I would watch it again. I'd mm. probably watch it as soon as this is over. Wow. <laughs> I've always got this sense, like, watching it, that, like, Hollywood has this problem when it's set in a foreign country, it feels the need that it has to color correct it to yellow or just a warmish tinge to give the idea that it's a different place. I feel like, yes, there is much more broader examples I could pick for this kind of shooting style. So often when you look at behind the scenes and how like the natural light is used, you'd feel like how they'd be better sticking to the more natural aesthetic rather than having to artificially change this in the edit to make it appear more, let's say, more just yeah, more orange. If you're looking for like an alternative to like those kinds of stories, um, I'd recommend there's this Irish film that came out in 2017, Bad Day for the Cut. It works on that similar sort of premise where there isn't a lot of setup or action in the first 30 minutes. It's just about getting you into this environment or these characters to care about them long enough. So when the bad stuff actually happens, you are properly rooting for the protagonist to properly like kill the villains because they are that despicable. Yeah, well, it's, it's yeah. Well, they try to get you to hate the villain, but he's not in it. And there is there's no villain to the piece, I don't think, properly, because they set up this one fella, and then he just says, "Go to his henchman, like go get go get Chris Hemsworth, who has the worst name ever, Tyler Rake. Go get him, Rake, Rake, like a lawn ornament thing. Wow. And then he just disappears for the majority of the, of the of the film. He pops up every now and again when somebody goes back with their tail between their legs. Like, I didn't get him. He's like, okay. Go so get Bruce him. Willis and Expendables then? Bruce Willis and Expendables, yeah. Hey, God, you that's think, that's like, a good he... comparison. It's an Expendables type movie. You watch it for the action. Yeah, the character between Tyler Rake and the little kid whose name I can't remember right now. The chemistry between those two is really good, but there's not enough of it for me to properly care. Yeah. <laughs> You reckon, like, he just looked in a mirror and thought to himself, hey, you know what would be a cool name? Rake. He must have been, like, gardening and struck, lightning struck, and then that was it. That was or, the know, epiphany moment. The rake looked like his washboard abs, and was like, eh. Wow. <laughs> he enough. <is> built. <laughs> okay, Michael, get a rake. <laughs> Here. Worth, yes. Leave his rakes alone. Peter, re ready or not, what's it about? Okay, Ready or Not was actually out last year, so, but it is such a good movie. It's basically, it's directed by Matt Bettinelli Oplin and Tyler Gillette. Yes, like the shaving film. Okay. And exactly. But basically, it's about this woman who decides that she she's getting married to this rich man whose family owns like an estate and they like do like. Oh. Sh like guns and one. stuff like that. <laughs> Have you seen this one as well? Yeah, I've seen this one. And then basically as as the wedding procession has like finished, they have to play a game to initiate her into the family. Basically, it takes a turn for the worse whenever the game that she picks is hide and seek. Mm -hmm. So I don't want to reveal anything more, but 
it's more or less a horror movie slash if you've ever seen what's that movie you're next with the australian woman is that the one with the big smiley faces in it or no that uh, no that's truth or dare yeah oh wait oh god like I yeah ready or ready or not is more like you're next or hush if you've seen it mm. it's kind of similar to that where it's like the person has to survive against all odds and to see whether or not she can but there's like a very good like twist in it and well, there's a mediocre twist in it, but I thought it was relatively good. <laughs> the lead girl in it was actually the the lead actress was Samara Weaving. She played in The Babysitter on Netflix, if you've seen that. Yeah. Every time I saw the box, I thought it was Margot Robbie. I'm not sure yeah, why. Exactly. She is Margot so Robbie. similar looking, yeah. <laughs> I was, but, it was about halfway through the movie, I was like, no, hang on. <laughs> this isn't Margot Robbie. <laughs> this is Margot Robbie? <laughs> yeah, it's her. And she, she's in it. She does a very good job of it. I think she's actually a very good actress. I've only ever seen her in The Babysitter and Ready or Not. However, she is looking incredible at doing, like, because she, like, does the switch around because, like, The Babysitter is very much, like, she's the villain, she's the antagonist, like, she's gone calm for your ass. But in this one, she plays the victim, but does it in, like, a strong, like, independent type of way, which is all for that female empowerment and all like that. Yeah, like, I think one way female empowerment in media often gets, like, ridiculed is the level of subtlety that gets put into it. Like, I know this might sound like a lot coming from someone like me, like, who is, like, a in his early... white man. <laughs> an early 20s white man who was raised as a Catholic, although, like, I've very much come to question that chain of belief. If I was to pick examples that I feel are good and ones that are bad, woman from... A, Peter's just doing a dance in the corner, you know, he's he's having a jolly old time. I am. Um, Why don't you say so, Peter? Peter, <laughs> Peter isn't the example. Like, just, just to clarify, he's, you know, he, he, he's good in his own rights, but, like, just not the one I'm thinking of. Um, wh What's the name of... Uh, she's the one in Lord of the Rings. She fights the Witch King at the end. Eowyn. Eowyn, yes. Like, generally, I love her art because, like, it's not actively drawing attention to itself. It's sort of just this idea that she wants to, like, stand up for herself and her beliefs. And, like, that one line just at the end of going this, like, I could be killed by no man. And then she tears off the helmet and just goes, I am no man. Like, I love that because it's one of those things where it's, like, it's built into their arc and also just... I think that serves as a good example, and like you can have completely opposite ones. Like there's that bit at Avengers Endgame, you know, where suddenly all of them come out like to face the boards. Like I think yes. it's just because like I can see your reaction to this is that it's one of those things where like it doesn't feel earned. It just feels like it put here because they're just like, okay, why not? It's just to fill up some time. Like I don't feel like it makes a proper statement as to female empowerment it just feels like it's just there for the sake of it yeah i feel like it it was there just for the sake of it however that moment was such like a like a oh look what's happening right now yeah it was it was iconic whether we like it or not yeah exactly it felt it did it did feel a little forced that out of this massive battle all the women <laughs> find themselves in the exact same spot to then attack the horde at the same time but we're like, you know, it's a, it's a good moment. It's it's very thematic. It was very good. The way, the, like, I was like, oh, that's pretty, that's pretty cool. They're forgetting someone. There, some something's going to happen here. And then Wasp shows up and like fixes our gauntlets. That's when I was like, 
<laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> Wasp is underappreciated. Mm. Wow. Yeah. Would you like a rib, Michael? With Evangeline Lilla. <laughs> She's good. That's that's kind of the, the wished away the conversation we just had about female empowerment. <laughs> I mean, he said it. This is the improv episode, so um, we're we're just figuring it out as we go. Just make it up. Were we talking about a horror movie? <laughs> we were talking about a horror movie. <laughs> I think it just sort of stopped at the Samara weaving. Yeah, please, Samara weaving back up to there. Oh, she's Always Australian. She is Australian, so the same place as Margot Robbie. So she is. She is Margot Robbie. Uh, <laughs> it's a clone. She's the Dolly, it's the, the clone. of Australia. Speaking of clones, sorry. <laughs> wow. Speaking of clones, uh, has any of you seen Sex Education? <laughs> uh, sorry, I uh, thought we were going to go into the no. other thing. No, I haven't. Only seen. because that there was a girl in that that's actually just spit an image of Margot Robbie. Oh right, right. I thought you were talking about like it's just, I thought that like, Sex Education was like a, <laughs> a clone or from Black or something. <laughs> no. Just talk about a clone of Margot Robbie once again. There's so many of them. Michael, let's talk about Clone Wars instead. Oh, yes, I, yes we were supposed to be doing that. <laughs> yeah, like, and just to clarify, this isn't the Wars of the Margot Robbie clones. That's this a very is... good point. <laughs> Segway. Although that could no. be... That, that would be the Disney Plus series I want to see. Screw Loki. Just the Clone Wars featuring all Margot Robbie's... Lookalikes, yeah. All right, sorry. Um, I'm just, I'm just gonna take a deep breath and just like get back to the conversation. Whatever for my Oh, uh, this was a mistake. Um, <laughs> Michael, um, we've been watching the Clone Wars final season that just had its finale. Yes, we have. I feel like the way this should work is you do your thoughts on it, and then I'll do mine. Go yeah, ahead and your own yeah. thoughts. I don't think I wrote my thoughts down. <laughs> I, Did I, I say should. whether or not I would watch it, depending I mean, on? Yes, I think you should. Okay. Just very good. The pro- okay with the final season. I'm not. I, just, I don't even need to take down notes. I know exactly what I'm going to say. It did wow. need to be twelve episodes long. It could have very easily have just been those last four episodes, mashed them together into like a the film that they can put up on Disney Plus. Because the only thing I cared about in that last season was the last four episodes they did the bad batch because they released those when it was cancelled so people know what was going to happen and the fans wanted those episodes so far enough release those two but the arc in the middle with ahsoka and those two women it was just that could have easily have been two episodes if they needed to do them it was just filler to get ahsoka to mandalore but when she got there everything was fun i loved it it brought it up to revenge of the sith and now if you watch revenge of the sith it completely changes how you watch it with the call with the Jedi Council. You're like, ah, it's, Ahsoka's there in about five seconds, and then they cut away. But everything, like everything, the motion capture, the animation, the sequence where like Ahsoka's fallen from the Venator starship down through the atmosphere was phenomenal. I would watch it. This is the one I would watch again in a heartbeat. Right now, looking at the Clone Wars final season, is that. I felt like it was a mixed bag. Like I had previously given my thoughts on like the prior two arcs. And now that this has all properly wrapped up, it's no denying that like they had an upwards battle trying to get this thing off the ground, especially because watching that final arc is that you can tell this was the one 
that was clearly given the most time in the oven to be made to the best of its abilities. Not just in how like the animation improved with time, but also just how everything just tied in together at the end. Like every part of that arc feels like it's got its own distinct identity, like the battle with Maul at episode two, the eventual execution of Order 66 itself, which is one of those things that like we knew it was coming. Like it was always going to be the inevitable conclusion that was going to happen, but it feels earned. It feels feels like there was always this ominous dread going into this arc because we know how close the eventual conclusion is going to be and it's all executed with a level of subtlety which is really surprising to see from like a current disney produced show like in particular i'm just going to mention this now this is a full spoiler discussion on the final few episodes if you do not wish to hear skip ahead there will be timestamps in the description my question is, how did I skip ahead? <laughs> I'm kidding. <laughs> oh, I think the best way to describe how Clone Wars final arc works in terms of its evolution for the show is its final scene, which is set years after all this has occurred and it's Darth Vader on the planet finding Ahsoka's old lightsaber. It leaves the series on this very bittersweet note. Like, this was just one war that all this we've watched is just on a perpetual loop and it's hard not to feel that sadness kicking in so much of like that final scene is just seeing how all of this just sort of got swept away and ignored it's not just through the wide shots it's also the fact like when we see Darth Vader I was dreading that they would have just got James Earl Jones just to say a line or two just because they're just like oh let's let, let. Yeah, let's just put in an Easter egg or something. Have them say one line or something. Like I'll the fact that special. hopefully they don't release a special edition twenty years from now with him suddenly just going, no. Oh, they will. Ugh, don't, don't, don't. They'll be listening in on us. This series was always going to be in a rough position to end because we knew what the finale was, and the fact that this season was so heavily condensed, like so many arcs were cut so much had to be left on the cutting room floor just to get us to this point it's hard not to feel like those omissions there like i am sad we didn't get to see more of characters like asaz ventress or cad bane and some people will argue that you know the extended material is there for me to read or watch or stuff like that but i've always stood by this belief i don't want to pay extra for material that should be in the product i'm already like paying attention to Oh, I, I, I can I can see that. I'm okay with like supplementary material. Like, it's a, my, my problem with Star Wars is that they turn everything into supplementary material. Like, there's a a character in the background of Phantom Menace that they then turned into another Jedi, Quinlan Voss, that has a whole comic and book arc. But I don't mind paying for that because I'm it's extra on top. It's not something I need. Yeah, exactly. It's show. just like extra material for those who want it. But there's been so many times in the last few years i've consumed something that like wants you to read or watch the extra material just to get the full like picture stuff mm. and looking at clone wars now as a conclusion overall i can safely say that it ended like the way i always wanted it to like seeing the progression from the honestly pretty rough season one up to here has been quite the journey i am sad to see it go but at the same time i'm not really sure if i if no one's ever watched clone wars before if i could recommend them to it now like my gut answer is yes it's still 
good. Like, there's still, like, material here worth consuming if you were ever into Star Wars, even if you weren't. I just feel yeah, right you know. now with so much Star Wars in the last few years, I feel, like, just a bit burnt out by it. Yeah, no, it's too much too fast. They should, they need to leave it. I but. was burnt out with Star Wars after... What's the one where there's a lot of lava? That is Revenge of the Sith. That is one of my favorite ones. Oh, I know. I enjoyed that one. However, ever since, I have not done. watched a full one since. So I mainly said what one would persuade me to watch it. But realistically, it's the same stuff over and over again, which is fine. And it's new content. However, I just feel like this is me personally, though. I would want something that's concise. You can give me six movies, that's fine. But if I don't get a conclusion to that, or if that's not it wrapped, I'm not going to stay invested invest it for like 20, 30 years. For what reason? Because I'm I'm going to have that unfulfilled feeling for how long? Mm. Mm. But then the whole sequel trilogy was pulled out of Disney's arch. I had that fulfilled feeling at the end of Return of the Jedi, which was the sixth one. Because the story was done, it was wrapped up every, mm-hmm. the places were where they needed to be. But then George Lucas sold it, and Disney were like, we're going to have three more movies. (laughs) (laughs) Fucking cunt. (laughs) You did that. That sounded like (laughs) as if you were doing an air hostess thing across the intercom. It was like, (laughs) we're going to have three more, mate. (laughs) And I feel like one of the biggest things with Star Wars' change of identity in the last few years is that, like, they're so determined to reuse specifically older material but not always really understanding it. Like, there's this great video done by the channel Sideways, which mainly looks into musical motifs, um, compositions, and how music gets imported into films and, like, their significant meanings. And he uses The Last Jedi, or, sorry, Rise of Skywalker as an example, and specifically points to how it uses tracks from the original films, but not in a way that really complements things. Like, they use music from when the Death Star gets blown up for one tiny escape, but makes it seem like that was a bigger deal because that was the music associated with, like, the climax of an earlier film. Or in how Leia tries to reach Kylo Ren, they use Han Solo and Leia's love theme, which by itself, like, in isolation doesn't sound that bad, but when you're thinking about how, like, that was reserved for that specific kind of encounter, those particular relationships, why does reapplying it now to here work? Yeah, it's it's a motif. It's used. Uh, it's, I didn't like it. <laughs> you you want to hear the reins of Castamere when the Lannisters are succeeding at something, not when they're about to be crushed to death. In fact, I'll give this as an alternative example. The ending credits of the Bells episode of Game of Thrones has that coupled with Light of the Seven, which is the track that played at the end of season six with the blowing up of the Citadel. And that was a much more fitting composition for that scene, but it was in the end credits of the episode rather than at the place where it probably would have benefited the story. I say this because I'm not a musical person, I see things visually, but seeing other elements performed inconsistently or not to the best of their abilities sort of leaves a weird aftertaste for me. Mm, yeah. Okay. I don't feel like we've had an episode yet where we haven't talked about Star Wars and Game of Thrones in a disappointed yet also hopeful context. Well, I mean, wow. I'm, ho- I'm hopeful that there's, there's still people out there that understand Star Wars. Mm. I'm not one of them. <laughs> well, it was Sam Whitmer came out during the week after everybody was like, Ryan Johnson's ruined Star Wars because he tried to reinvent it. 
but Sam Whitworth came out and said, to, in order to reinvent Star Wars, you need to understand Star Wars first, when Ryan Johnson clearly did not. <laughs> oh, we love shitting your show up and firing bullets. Okay. I'm just agreeing with one of the biggest Star Wars fans on planet Earth. <laughs> Uh, Michael, and- would you like another room? <laughs> oh, I think God. we're running out of rooms. <laughs> Not yeah. at this hotel. <laughs> yeah, and one thing about like fans' interpretation of products is that sometimes I feel like they can have a big influence on how something gets made, but also how it gets reinterpreted. If you want a good example of this, you can look at the popularization of a bridge series from the late 2000s. This is stuff like Yu-Gi-Oh! Bridge, Dragon Ball Z Bridge, and it was essentially a bunch of fans who redubbed and remade the material in their own way. And like one of the joys of watching series like that is you can see them go for their runs of being like silly little fan parodies with jokes to their own legitimate better versions of their own material that they've been readapting. Like genuinely, if you've ever watched DBZA, the bit when they get to episode 60 and they do Gohan's Super Saiyan 2 transformation, they did their own take on the Day of Fate song, it is, like, properly amazing. Oh, yeah, Team Four Star does that. They do a Final Fantasy VII abridged. Back to yeah. that. But yeah, and they, like, they redid all the music, too, and it's, it's phenomenal. Yeah, like, here's the thing. A lot of people were mad at them for cancelling that DBZA, and in some respects, I understand that because they are independently financed through Patreon and stuff like that, and I can understand the frustration that they were held for like months for no definitive answer only to get to say it's not happening but i really don't think there was a market for more bridging because like copyright is one of the hardest things we all have to deal with as creators to work on stuff and then to say it can't like be put on market and not make a profit plus like the effort it took to make those things was like months apart in episodes and in the era of youtube where they want creations every week and always long, you know, just to get their audience. It makes sense that they wanted to move on to other projects and stuff like that. There's probably some legal trouble there as well. Let me notice. Speaking of moving on to other stuff, Checkpoint Quest. I think my transition skills in this episode are not good. I feel like I, <laughs> I took too much alcohol before I started this. Fix in post. Oh, you can't. Oh. Is Mark cut? Do we need to drink to catch up? I know. I just got really nervous before recording, and I was just like, all right, I just want to go loose. And then Peter came in. I went, you know what? Let's, let's just improvise. Let's just do whatever we want. Oh, so he's been trying. Okay, everybody get crook. Everybody raise your glasses up. <laughs> you hear that silence? This is just my sanity just slipping away. I wish I'd been and it's for. also me and Michael catching up. Yeah. I lost this moment. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Um, so, Michael, you've been playing Greedfall. What's it about? Uh, the best way I can describe it is like it's a Mass Effect that yeah, I am a mess. <laughs> and you haven't even been drinking yet. Yeah, it's it's made by Spiders, I believe the development team is called. I don't think they've done anything before this, but it's 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 a RPG sort of Bioware type game where you make the you make all the decisions on an island, and it'll eventually affect your ending. I haven't finished it yet. Oh. But story-wise, it seems to be really good. I don't 
there's some aspects of the gameplay I don't like. I think the camera is too far away from your character for me to properly identify with them. And you can't re-customize your character once you've started. I gave my character mm. a god-awful beard at the start and I can't get rid of it. And I am furious. <laughs> but I'm living with it. Fair. It, what, what platform's this for? It's a PS4, Xbox One, and PC. Mm. Okay. Leave. I think like there's this thing with games that are based around decisions you make is that so often like they promise that there's going to be consequences but more often than not you have to go down this very specific path they want you to take so you you say dis- you pick choice A and that gives you C and D but if you pick choice B you have to go with F or G something like that yeah. and I feel like the best kinds of narrative driven games by decisions are ones that make you feel like you are purposely making decisions that are something you would want to do even though you are sort of aware that these are all pre-programmed responses that only you can put in in a particular order well yeah it's, it is kind of like as you're playing you're like oh, i wouldn't do this but your character is a he's meant to be like a, a diplomat so you have to be a diplomat. i would i would go in to see a situation and be like i hate this person but if i get on their bad side then they'll do this to somebody else so i have to placate them so that they don't get it's like you need to work with your relationships with companies and things like that which is a very good aspect in it but my god it wears on you right and do you try to play this uh, as like just an all-rounded person or do you just try to go in and be an asshole uh you have to go you i mean it's up to the player but I'm, i'm trying to stay neutral with everybody which means that sometimes i have to do something that somebody wouldn't like, go back to them and lie to them about it, saying, I didn't do that, what are you all about? So, like, I, I always feel awful when I try to be bad in, like, story-driven games, but I will say there can be some enjoyment with it. Like, I remember one time I got, like, really sick during secondary school, and I started replaying Telltale's The Walking Dead. Now, all my playthroughs of this, I've always just tried to play a well-rounded, just nice person, but in this particular playthrough, I was just like, you know what? I'm feeling bad, so I'm going to make everyone feel bad. So I played Lee as an absolute scumbag. So, like, he was just rude to everyone. It's like, like Lee is like, feck off, Clementine. I don't like you. Or stuff like that. Yeah, Which means in that case, spoiler alert, Lee deserved it. Yeah, Lee deserved it. <laughs> <laughs> After, like, two episodes, I stopped because I felt too bad about it. I just went back to being a good boy because that's what I am. Yeah, I can't. Anytime I, like... Try like you know what, I'm gonna be evil this playthrough. I'll do one thing, and I'll be like, I feel really bad about that. I'm gonna I'm gonna go like save a puppy or in real puppy. life. So in real <laughs> life, yeah, yeah, yeah. Save as much puppies as you can. Just build a chain of wholesomeness. Exactly. Only do that in real life, so you can be evil in game. It only makes sense. Yeah. As a sort of a Mass Effect sort of title, like how does this work? And is there like a combat system? Do you fight anything, or is it just yes, mainly no. about decisions? You do, you do fight, there is a combat to it, it's sword play and guns, it's, I don't know how to describe the era. You're giving me Fable vibes right now. Yeah, yeah, like Fable, yeah. Except, you know, the animations are less clunky. Oh! It's, it's right about that, that kind, of, kind of time frame, but it's it's your basic, like, square to slash, triangle to lunge. It, it's a bit more complicated than that, where you <laughs> can't just parry your way through it, you have to properly think about how you're going to take down this person. I normally resolve to just shooting them. I Indiana Jones it. Okay. Yeah, he's in, and I was like, <laughs> bang. <laughs> and you're like, death. <laughs> hmm. 
I'll, I'll keep an eye out for it. Uh, Peter, you were playing yes. Sky Ch- Children of Light. No. Here's the oh. thing. Well, realistically, I could give you a better game than this, which of course is the case. But this is a game that... Did you, did either of you play Journey in 2012? PS3, yeah. Yes, I recently yes. got that downloaded. I haven't yet played it. It was PlayStation 3's Game of the Year, right? It's beautiful. Or, no, it was the best PlayStation 3 game, period. I think that's what it was. It's the same developers that made that, made Ch- uh, Sky Children of Light, right? But this is free and for uh, your phone or your tablet or whatever. I think it's also going to be coming out in the Switch this summer, which is going to be right. in first in edition. Um, Exactly, but it is, it's like one of those light-hearted, like, just fill your day up with, like, a little bit of, like, gameplay. If you're not wanting to invest yourself in, like, a game, like, uh, or, like, invest your time in, like, something for hours on end, but you easily could do that if you wanted to. It's just, like, a stunning little game, just like Journey. There's no audio. You can play with other players. You can actually play with friends in this one, and you can get their code. You can... You can literally play online with your own friends, but you do it all on your phone. Right. Now, I'm just wondering about this having the audience it does, because Journey obviously, like, got recognition for its own style, very, like, let's say, a subtle narrative sort of look to it, as well as, you know, the fact it was on a system it could sell, you know, to the general public. This being on a phone, do you feel like there's, like, limits to that, you know, in terms of fidelity and an audience? Or do you feel like it has the potential, like, to be its own thing? Well, you see, I'm the type of person that's a completionist. And in it, you have to try and collect as many, like, what is it? You need to collect hearts, uh, candles, which is their light source. And you need to collect, or something else anyway. And it's, like, you can do it, but... I'm the type of person that's a completionist, like I said, that I then checked on YouTube. I know, sad, but I don't care. Oh, you didn't walk through? Yeah, mm. and there is thousands of them. There is people that literally go in with these walkthroughs. Then it's insane with the amount of people that are playing this game. But the thing is, you can play with your friends, but there will always be another player that you could potentially become a friend with in the game, but you don't know who that person is in real life. And so they it's just kind of like Journey then? It is exactly like Journey, yeah. but this time you get to pick, you can bring in your friends as well. You can customize your wee person as well with the candles and the hearts and stuff that you collect. It's just a pleasant little game. It's heartfelt. It's just a wee, I think it's also relatively short, so it's like you can spend your time doing as much as you want, collecting as much as you want, and all like that. Is yeah. there any microtransactions in it if it's a mobile game well michael let me tell you um <laughs> there is <laughs> uh, uh, no. quite a few microtransactions ranging from uh you ready for this Go 4.99 or 99 pounds 99 for the season pass Ooh. what's in the season pass what do yes, they do you, you get for the season pass you buy it basically for you and a friend and both of you get all the candles that you need. I say that it's like one thousand five hundred candles, which doesn't do anything. But it's just it's just messy. You just play it by yourself. Don't get any microtransactions. Yeah, just I don't. Do- I th- don't give it to a friend. Why? Exactly. Why would I spend a hundred pound for me and a friend? Give it to somebody else. <laughs> Literally. So no. But if we're not talking about an iOS, we could talk about the game control. 
Oh, yes. Oh, yes. I've been curious about this one. Control, which is made by... Who's it made by? Uh, Remedy. Remedy Interactive. They did Max Payne and... They did uh, Max Payne, uh, Alan Wake. Alan, Alan Wake was the one. And um, the other one mm-hmm. on Xbox, Quantum Yeah, Break. Quantum Break was a weird one because like they tried so hard to be like films and TV shows that they straight up made a TV show and yeah. just ha- yeah. had a game around it. A bit yeah. too far. Yeah, Control is next level so good, but that's only because I loved Alan Wake and I'm getting such a strong vibe from that as well. Yeah. It's such a good one. It's like you collect once again a ton of things. Kind of initially pricey, if I still remember correctly. I think it's like £50 for like the full game type of thing, but it's so good. And I'm the type of person that likes to play fantasy games, but also likes that modern twist. So like this X was... Just X and like Control are literally up there with games that I absolutely adore now. Nice. Yeah, they, they, Remedy know what they're doing. Mm-hmm. Big time. I feel like I'm going to take this last one. I've been playing Luigi's Mansion 3. This is uh, on the Switch. It came out just around Halloween last year. Mm-hmm. So here's the thing. Luigi's Mansion is a series that's never really gotten, let's say, that much love from Nintendo itself because... It's sort of always been there in the background, you know, it appears and stuff like Mario Kart or Smash and stuff like that. But I think for the longest time, it was just sort of there as that one property that no one really cared about. For years, like, it's slowly been developing a cult reputation. Like, we did get a sequel for the 3DS. The original got ported to that system later on in that life cycle. And then finally, we got this here on Switch. Mm-hmm. I'd say I generally love this game. Like, Peter, if you're into your collectathons, you will properly be into this. Mm-hmm. The main way to describe this starting off is that this game looks great. Like, the Switch is not a powerhouse system. It's sort of designed more for versatility and variety rather than pushing graphical fidelity. And I feel like this is the title that I feel will push the argument that a good aesthetic is much better than proper quality 4k graphics because all the designs not just of like our nintendo characters but also like of the ghosts themselves and the environments are so aesthetically pleasing to look at like they're all built up of very simple shapes and sort of ideas like every floor of the mansion is sort of dedicated to like its own particular theme one's the basement it's mainly run by a redneck ghost and then there's one that is uh, a film director, which was my particular favorite one. He was essentially just depressed that nothing was going his way and nothing went right. Wow. Sounds like as if both of them are very true to their nature. (laughs) (laughs) My life in general. Especially relate to the redneck one. No kidding. The game works on a very simple sort of structure. Like every floor is essentially about you finding like the main ghost to take them out, have their key and continue on to the next. And... The charm of it is seeing each individual floor's own personality. Like, you do sort of settle into a routine of how everything goes, but it's an enjoyable enough thing where it's like, when you take out the first one, you can't wait to see what the second one's like. And so many of them are such expressive and very, very cute and endearing. And the lighting itself amplifies so much of the aesthetic itself. Like, it's the type of game I love to take screenshots of because it doesn't have a photo mode. I wish it did, because, like, the just level of, like, subtle details and stuff just really adds it all together. And 
as someone who's a bit of a clean freak, it's nice just to, like, get the vacuum cleaner in it and you just destroy <laughs> the environment in its entirety because, like, so much of it is very interactable. Like, compared to a lot of other titles, it's actually fun just to mess around and see what isn't, like, nailed down and just mess around with it. Yeah. And one big improvement from the last one is that because of them using the individual floors it bypasses the problem its previous game had about levels so the way luigi's mansion 2 worked is that you essentially had different mansions but you went into the same one like five times with a different objective on each go through and you essentially did go through the same place with a slightly different objective or a tool to get by and it just sort of dragged the pacing in this one it goes by at a much quicker speed and a lot of the mechanics they introduce into this, like the uh, ability to slam ghosts, dramatically helps with the catching process. Like, I don't want to go back to the earlier games because of this. Wow, slamming ghosts? Okay. Slamming ghosts? Yeah, exactly what I was thinking. Okay. That's a Flex, I guess. Necrophilia, but in the spirit realm. That being said, like, there's still some persistent issues that have gone through each game, and it's still kind of there. Like, one like the booze are still a hassle to cat essentially you have to go into a room where like you know they're there and you have to hit like maybe one out of five potential drawers if you don't catch him you go to another room and do the same process and like it's this repeating cycle of having to keep trying until he finally turns up you have to fight one half of them and then he runs away and you have to try and do it again and there's one for every floor it's the type of thing where it just keeps like going to the point where you're just like i just want one collectible why is this one taking so much time and effort to get yeah so it's like trying to find peach and mario mm. <laughs> yeah. outside of that i feel like a lot of the best puzzles are actually from the exploration into finding some of the items and stuff so there's essentially gems on every floor to find along with the one one boo a lot of this uh, is honestly really endearing. Like, the puzzles themselves aren't difficult. It's more just using your handful of tools just to get through every situation. And, like, it usually telegraphs what to use and where. Whatever pace you go at them, it feels just nice to play. Like, it's just got very nice, pleasing music. Like I said, just the aesthetic of each floor, I think, really adds to just the atmosphere and sort of aesthetic. As well as that, Luigi himself is just really expressive and likable. Like... I think because, like, he is a coward, but the fact that he is going through each floor and reacts slightly differently, like, he gets more courageous as it goes along, I just thought was really endearing. You'd think by the third game he'd be used to it. Wow. <laughs> Who knows, like, there, there, there's a ghost dog in this, so um, that's that's a media thumbs up for me. Um, Fair. I love the fact that me and you came with light and daring games and then michael comes with greed for make your decision <laughs> proper you 2000 edge the last major problem i think i can mention about luigi's mansion 3 and honestly there isn't a lot i think it's just a really nice uh, sort of title just to work your way through at a slow pace or whatever rate you feel like is that I've never felt like any of the Luigi's games or Luigi's Mansion games were specifically designed for their system in mind. Like I mentioned about Luigi Mansion 2, about the level structure, how it sort of impacted the pacing, but they also try to port the original one from GameCube to the same system, the 3DS. You can tell it really wasn't built for it. Like 
it was meant for twin sticks. It wasn't for like the original setup where there's just one circle pad or how the environments feel a lot more cramped than they would have been, especially because like someone who has a free DS more than likely would be designed for quick fix 30 minute sessions, not a like, let's say a proper sit down you would have with your normal home console. And Luigi's Mansion 3 for the most part has worked around this like the twin stick uh, pull mechanic is still takes a bit of time to get used to but it is much more um, versatile you can switch up your controllers to work around the setup i myself have used a pro for a lot of this so well, Luigi's mansion free it's like good recommendation for me it's not a okay. no usually i would have ended this here because i feel like there would have been enough to discuss in terms of media but right now there's been so much more stuff going on entertainment wise that i felt like it was worth implementing a new section i don't really have a title for this yet we'll probably figure it out so let's just say this is the news <laughs> no, it's just I'm imagining the editing process for this, and I'm going to be putting like the Wii Shop music in because I feel like it's the most relevant. <laughs> yeah, that was the kind. No, that was the weakest link. <laughs> oh no! Just this has just been a disaster, a fun disaster. Don't get me wrong, but there's a point. About ten minutes in, I was just like. What have I done? Oh, God. What mistakes have we made? Xbox had their, well, let's say gameplay reveal, but like I'm using like quotation marks (laughs) around the gameplay because it really wasn't there. Oh. I'm not going to lie. I didn't overly pay attention to a lot of this presentation because like I rarely ever sat through the full conferences. I sort of just see the major like moments of it documented in reports and stuff like that and that's where like i sort of get my opinions from i feel like right now where the next console generation is going i don't think graphical fidelity is the most important thing right now i think it's more just going to be about processing speeds and stuff like that because i feel like we're already at that stage where we've achieved like realistic looking graphics in 4k where everything looks the best it could possibly be and I know I had this mention earlier about how aesthetics, I think, are more important than um, processing power. I feel like the lineup they're showing in this particular event just was not working for me. Like, totally unremarkable. The main thing about the different sort of brands is that you want to talk about the things that make them specific. Like, you know, what makes them unique? And the entire time I looked through all of the articles and reports, I was like, why isn't there a halo? Why isn't there a specific property that like I associate with this brand? Not, let's say, the next gen sequel to such and such series, which is on any other platform. Like I remember last year they were marketing Devil May Cry 5 more through Microsoft than anything else, mm-hmm. which by itself I don't think is a bad thing. But when you think of Devil May Cry, you don't really think, think of Xbox. Do. You think more PlayStation. Like, that's the system where it sort of started out at. This party's getting crazy. What? Like, <laughs> Death of a Cry? <laughs> Whenever it. Whatever. <laughs> okay. Just take my soul and fill it full of light. 
<laughs> None of the particular reveals stood out to me with like maybe the exception of Assassin's Creed Valhalla because I feel like that was the one that got the most input for it. Yeah, 100%. I, I am I so excited for it. I am excited for that, but the thing that caught my eye uh, yesterday, was it yesterday when it was on? Two days ago? Whatever. was Scorn. Kind of looked Which like is- a HR Geiger, like oh. alien type game. Actually, yes. I was. I saw that one and I was thinking to myself, is this the Alien Isolation sequel I've been wanting for years? I feel like them trying to advertise the different genres, I feel like, is probably the best way to like get the biggest net for people in, but it on its own, I think seems more of like not a next gen experience feels like just one of those like indie games that got like a really good marketing trailer for it or like you know a fidelity marketing trailer for it or like you know a fidelity sort of thing Hmm. the reason i mentioned assassin's creed out of anything else is that i feel like it's the brand that is probably the most recognized right now even though like if i'm gonna speak personally like i fell off that series ages ago. I think, like, Black Flag was the last one I properly played through to completion. I am literally the exact same, except I stopped halfway through Black Flag only because the sailing aspect was good, but it felt so much. Okay, Michael, thanks for that judgy eye. Yeah, uh, that was judgy. Black Flag is my favorite. (laughs) Okay, I actually just beat it again. The annualization of any series, I feel like, is probably the death mark of its long-term decline in quality. Like, I don't think Assassin's Creed for me ever, like, properly dropped for me. Like, I know a lot of people will point to Unity or something like that with its bad launch, but, like, I sort of fell off the series before that. Oh, I I actually, I played Unity and I really enjoyed that more than I enjoyed Black Flag. Michael, give me those judgy eyes again. (laughs) <laughs> we're all about like balanced views and different opinions and we're not going to mock each other for our own shit taste it's, I'm, oh, I'm, I'm wow. saying this with crossed fingers just fingers crossed <laughs> we don't mean any of this we're going to rip each other apart exactly in all honesty I am curious about Valhalla because I've slowly been getting into a lot of Norse mythology itself because um I did the audiobook uh, by Neil Gaiman, uh, same title, I just got really enthusiastic about it. I've also recently picked up the God of War game, which I'm going to refer to as Norse God. I feel like that's the best way to just describe it uh, because of the setting. And I really hope there's a photo mode in this because it's not just about the settings itself. It's more just that it's nice to mess around with like the compositions and stuff for that. Like I feel in this age of like modern fidelity systems we have the chance to like really develop let's say in-game photography and considering i can't really do the real life equivalent right now i feel like that's something nice for me to work on like creatively mm-hmm. get oh yeah. get 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 uh death stranding and that's incredible they eventually put one into red dead redemption and uh, Red Dead Redemption 2, and I felt like, you know, that was a game that deserved it, you know, outside of the cinematic mode, I felt like that added things to its its longevity. Do you know what's funny? I, I played Red Dead Redemption, and I absolutely adored it. It was phenomenal. But I played Red Dead Redemption 2, and couldn't get into it. Like, I spent, like, three hours trying to play through it, and, like, it just didn't happen. And I was like... <laughs> You were wanting uh, like the moment to click. Yeah, no. I can, I can kind of get that. It was, it was a really slow start. Mm-hmm. Oh, like I had that because I really just started losing interest in open worlds games a while ago. And when I first started Red Dead Two, 
I didn't even buy it. It was a gift from my brother. And like, the fact is, I just had a really long Christmas break just to play through it. And there's a certain point that like it all just clicked and I was just constantly playing it. Like I nearly missed a shift at work because of it. And <laughs> yeah, it was the type of thing. That's how invested I got into it. I feel like in this current time where we're not really sure on like the confirmed nature of when something gets released, adding elements to give it more longevity, even on newer systems, I feel like can do something in the long run for titles, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I think the reason I kept the Xbox One so short is that I don't think anything specifically jumped out at me because of uh, the reveal. It was more just how light it felt. Like you can see in a lot of the particular YouTube trailers, they actually removed a lot of the dislikes, despite the fact you can clearly tell one is much higher than the other. Yeah, they changed the name of it as well, from gameplay to in-engine. Uh, marketing is a weird thing, but like, if you say something on the box, your goal is to like actively achieve this. I had a Samsung phone for a while, and I still do, and this was after like they had that incident with their batteries blowing up. Like, I've still gone back to them because like they have improved from then. Last of Us 2, given an official release date after a spoiler leak. Oh, yeah. When is the official release date? I think it's like... 19th of June. I so far have not seen any of the spoilers. Personally, I really didn't have much affection for Last of Us, which is weird because that came out when the zombie craze was everywhere. Like, you couldn't ignore it. I feel like with all the changes Naughty Dog has had in the last few years, I've just not really had as much interest because I feel like more and more they're trying to make video games into movies. Which by itself, I don't think is a bad thing, but when everything else, because they're on a higher plane that people take influence from, more people will try to be like them, and I think video games should be more focused on being what makes them special, their interactivity, the ability to like explore environments, and not always put you down one determined path. I've never really been affected by them that much. Yeah, the response around it does not seem like positive yeah, at all. I, I don't I don't like I don't like it. Do you think you're going to play it in June? Or... I think if they are true, which I'm pretty sure they've been confirmed at this point. Wait, what are, what are these spoilers? Because I clearly must have missed something. I, I, I will not say anything. Because oh, okay. People who've been talking about it are being like struck down on YouTube and things. Mm. Also, if anybody listens to this and doesn't want to be spoiled, they're going to hear it. But if, even after hearing the spoilers, I'll probably I'll buy it play to a certain point and that's it if that yeah. gives you a hint because one thing I'll say about is like knowing a narrative's conclusion is one thing but experiencing it is something else entirely like I feel right now with this generation coming to an end it's just weird that it's taken this long for Last of Us sequel, like, I don't know what the market for this game is in 2020, not just because of, like, the spoiler leak, but also that, like, any sort of, like, fascination with post-apocalyptic environments or stories like that, I think have just kind of fallen away in the last few years. Because we're living in it. <laughs> yeah, like, the original delay of it came, or let's say indefinite hiatus occurred because of what's going on, and now suddenly it being given a proper release date because of these events strikes me as one of those things where 
it's a act of panic just to get this out. And in particular, I've never I've never been fond of the crunch mentality that's come into a lot of video game projects in the last few years, especially looking into some of the development of Naughty Dog's games. Sometimes I do find it hard to like really invest in something when I know someone probably lost a good portion of their life or mental health because of something. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and in all honesty, I want to give The Last of Us another chance because it always hurts me when I can't really get into something a lot of people find something that resonates with them or something that's really popular. Like that frustrates me when I don't connect with it because I want to share that enthusiasm. But as of now, I don't really feel like there's enthusiasm. It's more just tiredness, especially because, like, in all that's been going on, I really don't think a Last of Us sequel was the thing we needed. I think the the market's still there for it. Everybody who played the first one's going to want to, well, would have wanted to play this one. Probably. Some of the marketing around it as well is also just one of those things where they wave it in front of us to make it seem like it's more important or revolutionary. Like, I think I sent this into our group chat about how the enemies apparently will be given names to make you feel bad for killing them. Yeah. yeah. Does anyone That's remember Youngster Joey from Pokemon? You beat up his team, you steal his money, you fight 20 times. I don't think anyone remembers Youngster Joey or feels bad about taking that money because you've beaten up him, his friends, all the adults, all these gym leaders, and now you're the champion. Because you beat everyone else up. Did you feel bad about that? I did. I don't feel bad at all. (laughs) Uh, I just did not get, though. (laughs) Yeah, like, would you feel bad if you found out that uh, as Pac-Man, if you killed Inky, that he came home and he did all his work because he had to provide for his son? Maybe he's in a divorce with his wife. Like, if I got uh, a badge for it, I'd be happy with it. <laughs> I have a sad family life. Here. Bye, bitch. <laughs> as long as I win, I don't care. <laughs> oh, that's... You're in my neighborhood now. <laughs> oh, that took a dark turn. <laughs> <laughs> I, I probably will play this at release uh, just to get my say in on the market for this. But as of right now, Last of Us 2 has just sort of left me in a place where... I'm not really sure what sort of appeal this has for me now because not just because my interest in these kinds of stories have faded with time, it's more just about the relevancy of having these stories. Like, I feel like whatever piece of media is made in whatever year it's like put together, it should say something about that era, but also just how it like gets seen years from now. Like Look at something like the early seasons of The Simpsons. Like, people still, like, remember them and joke and meme about them all the time. When anyone talks about the show in its current context, it's all about how, like, it's just a shell of its former self. Like, that's what I'm fearing The Last of Us is going to become. Yeah. Yeah. Or just talking about Star Wars earlier and how we were tired of it, but I think this will turn Michael's mood on it. Taiga Waititi has been announced as the director of the next feature Star Wars film. Love that. So, like, any, like, raw thoughts, you know, just at the announcement of this? Not really. I need more details before I'll get any excited about it. I'm cautiously optimistic. Like, this is a word I used before Obi-Wan Kenobi said it, and now everyone's going to think, like, I ripped him off. One thing I'm always concerned about is when you get directors, like, who have had previous success and put them into these positions, 
is how it's going to last. Probably one of the biggest pulls Solo had very early on was having the team of Phil Lord and Chris Miller on. Like, they had success with stuff like the Lego Movie, 21 Jump Street, stuff like that. They were probably one of the big reasons people got interested in seeing it. And it obviously was going off, like, really loose, not really well-founded foundations. Them being fired, I think, was the final nail in the coffin for that film, just, like, not really leaving much an impact afterwards. So I feel right now with Watiti, he's good at working within bigger franchises and stuff like that. Like, he's proved that with Four Ragnarok. But, and this is a thing with me, I much prefer his smaller independent work. It's sort of, I sort of have that with a lot of other directors in the MCU. Like, I much prefer Ryan Coogler's earlier work compared to Black Panther or trying to think of another smaller or director in that beforehand or like John Favreau. Love the first Iron Man and stuff, but like, I much prefer like his smaller scale projects like Elf, that, and his writing position on. The Mandalorian, I feel, is more ideal for him than the Disney remakes he's forced into. Like, generally, I think my biggest regret I had early on when I tried starting this up was that I did this awful 15-minute rant about the live-action Lion King. And I cringe looking back on the quality of it because there wasn't really a direction. There wasn't any sort of setup for me to accurately talk about it. But I'm not going to lie, I got a catharsis out of just saying this thing was awful and I hated it. And since then, like, I properly, like, mocked Favreau because of it. And now, like, looking back on it, I feel like the smaller scale projects are something I have much more investment in. Especially because, like, as film students, we're more interested in the smaller productions. We're interested in seeing how things like this get made. I mean, I'm interested to see where this goes. Right now, with all the Star Wars stuff that's been going on right now, I feel like this project could have literally have gone to anyone and it probably would have gotten the same response. The fact is that it is with TD, I think, is just generating some positive uh, viewpoints on it. Mm. Some, not all. I'm, it's still, it still goes back to, it's like taking two things that I'm ambivalent, not two things, taking something I'm ambivalent about and something that I really enjoy and putting it together. Which one will win? Only one way to find out. Yeah. Bye! <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to end this episode here because before I would have ended with personal advice or stuff like that or just how to deal with the world. But right now, I just don't feel like there's enough significance that has gone on for me to like accurately talk about or go on. Because I feel like if I am to make this a definitive section, it should come from a place of passion or wanting to actively talk about rather than something that's just thrown in on the list, if you know what I mean. Mm hmm. I honestly do apologize that this episode felt a bit up and down. I've just, just been very weird the last while with all this going on. And I actively do really enjoy this. It's something nice to work on on the side. And I get to share this with some really lovely, charismatic people. Um, claps to yourselves. So. Go us. Yeah. You're doing amazing, CD. <laughs> Thanks, and I feel like I'm going to wrap this up here. Um, I have set up uh, some proper social media links for this show now. So, you know, Bebo, MySpace. Uh, oh, my. <laughs> Please tell me. <laughs> Viber, BBM. T- Tumblr. Like who Yahoo.com. <laughs> who uses Tumblr? Um, actually, this show um, has gotten onto a few more platforms now because uh, thanks to Anchor, um, this show is now up on Spotify, which I'm really happy to see. If you do have any sort of questions or just want to see us react to some things, uh, you can send us an email at talkingcrapabout at gmail.com. Please keep it safe for work. 
or don't and send That's it to fun. the email yeah. of no I'm kidding <laughs> <laughs> no, not safe for work emails go to Peter well <laughs> thanks for listening Michael any last words for the listener <laughs> Peter any last words for the listener uh, I hope that your excretion on the toilet whilst you're listening to this was great or if you're listening to it with your families um, I hope that you enjoyed this experience thank you so much I hope they're not listening with families goodbye <laughs>